You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Amen. Amen and amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Great to see you, church family, on this happy June day. I uh, hope you ate lots of cookies and that you're all filled with sugar so you don't go to sleep. You can take a good nap this afternoon. Um, so this is the last Sunday in our sermon series that we've been doing since Easter. Um, it's called Always With You. Um, I have loved getting deep into these wonderful chapters in the book of John, John 14 through 17, some of my most favorite chapters in the whole Bible in which we really get to see into the heart of Jesus, what he loves what he prays for, what he wants for his people, uh, for his church, both present and future. Um, And the last chapter, especially chapter 17, is very beautiful because we get to see what Jesus is praying for the night before he is crucified. We get to see the deepest longings of his heart that he is asking the Father for. We looked last week at the first half of that chapter, um, and today we're looking at the last six verses in um, John 17. So if you want to turn in there in your Bibles... John 17, verses 20 through 26, where you can just listen as I read, and I'm I'm just going to pray for God's help as we read his word. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you that you have given us the word of God, the scriptures that were inspired by the Holy Spirit all those years ago, and we thank you that the same Spirit is with us now, illuminating the reading and preaching of your word. And so we pray for help Uh, for me, for all of us so that we would not just be empty hearers of the word today, but that we would respond to both your word and the table with our whole lives, with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's hear God's word from John 17, verse 20. My prayer is not just for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. So uh, for those of you who are old enough to remember, I want you to go back with me to 1985. Um, I was eight years old. Uh, Ronald Reagan was president. Um, The gas price I checked was $1.20 per gallon. Um, The most popular movie in the theaters at the time was, can you guess it? Back to the Future. Yeah, Back to the Future. Um, And that year, a song was released that everyone believed had the power to unite the world. I was gathered with my family around the TV to watch. It began with Lionel Richie's 
lone voice. Do you remember? <laughs> there comes a time. <laughs> I'm not going to really do it. I'm not going to. When we heed a certain call, when the world must come together as one. Remember that? And then as the music builds, you know, he's slowly joined by Stevie Wonder and then Paul Simon, and Kenny Rogers, Tina Turner, Billy Joel, Cindy Lauper, and of course, the one and only Michael Jackson. No, Bono wasn't there. I don't know why. It's a real mess there. Um, and then in the climax, the whole celebrity choir. It was kind of an amazing event, actually. Go back and watch it on YouTube. And kids, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, this is just a big thing that you are just have missed out on forever. I'm so sorry. Um, but it, the celebrity choir saying out, we are the world, we are the children, we are the ones who make a brighter day, so let's start giving. It was beautiful, it was moving. I'm pretty sure I cried, everybody cried. You cried, raise your hand if you cried, right? It was so awesome, right? Anyway, um, what that song represented for so many people was just a longing, I think, that we all carried at the time and we still carry for today, and it's a longing for unity. I mean, we said it in, in, they said it in the song, the whole world coming together as one. It was a major global aspiration then, and it remains um, a major global aspiration today. And we now sort of look 38 years later, did that song do it? Did it bring together the world as one? Mm, no, it did not. Um, ultimately, uh, those last 38 years have, have not at all been a time of global unification. In fact, the 20th century ended as one of the most violent in all of human history, and the 21st century began with such violence. Um, so far in the 21st century, we've had wars and divisions and violence, and social and political divisions and polarization are as bad as they have ever been. And the church really hasn't done a whole lot better in this area in being one. There are now, um, I just checked, there are now more than 45,000 different Christian denominations, 45,000. Um, with the church splitting over and over and over again, almost every, over everything that you could imagine. The sad truth is, y'all, we're not one. The world certainly isn't one. Christians aren't one. The church isn't one. We're not unified. We're not making the world a brighter place. And yet, here's Jesus' prayer. This is what he prays for. The night before he dies, he bears his soul to the Father. He prays, he pleads with the Father for the thing that he most wants, what he most desires to see for his people. And what does he pray for? That we would be one, that we would be unified. And so what does this mean? And does Jesus' prayer remain unfulfilled? And what would it mean for us to align ourselves with the prayer of Jesus? That's what we want to ask today. So I just want to ask a few questions about that unity. First of all, what is the nature of it. What kind of unity is Jesus talking about? The nature of unity. Second, we're going to look at the purpose of unity. What does Jesus say is the point and purpose of this? And then finally, what's the power? What's the source of this unity that he prays for? Okay, are y'all with me? All right, so first let's look at what is this nature of the unity that Jesus is praying for? Is it really just kind of putting our arms around each other and, and promising to get along? Well, no, um, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Um, if you look where he begins in verse 20, he says, my prayer is not for them alone, that is his disciples, but also for all who will believe in me through them. And basically everyone who's ever believed in the gospel because of the message of the apostles, he prays that all of them, both the apostles and all who believe in the message of the apostles would be one. And so Jesus begins his prayer 
by praying that all of us who are believers would have unity together with the original apostles and that we would have this historic, what we would say apostolic unity between the original and church and the future church that comes after it. This is what we um, are confessing when we said in the creed, as we said this morning, y'all hear it. We said, I believe in one holy Catholic church. Catholic is not like the big C Roman Catholic church, but the small C, which means all-encompassing or universal. In the Nicene Creed, we even say more. We say, I believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. And so what we're saying is, is that the unity of the church that spans generations, that spans histories, that spans cultures, is unity that is grounded in the apostolic message about Jesus. Unity is grounded in truth. It's grounded in something. It's not a common religious experience. It's not a common uh, commitment to do certain things, but our unity, the unity of the historic church is grounded in the truth of the gospel, the truth of God that he has given to us in and through Jesus Christ. That's what Christian unity is. And the reason why that's so important is because it protects us from two errors that Christians tend to fall into on one side or the other. On the one side, um, this guards against relativism. Sometimes you'll hear Christians say, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe. It doesn't really matter what you believe about Jesus. Or it's just as long as you're, you're a Christian or you call yourself a Christian, let's just commit to get along. Well, no, we would say, actually, it does matter what you believe. Theology is important. Doctrine is important. The truth of what we believe about the gospel is important. Christian unity is grounded in the apostolic truth of the gospel, right? And so we, do, we, we reject this idea that it's unity at any price, unity at any cost. No, Christian unity is grounded in the apostolic historic truth of the gospel that we confess in the creed. On the other hand, we also, if some Christians are prone to relativism, other Christians are prone to what I would call dogmatism. And that's where you're so certain about every single thing that you believe about every single Christian issue and every single Christian matter that you believe you are absolutely true and everybody else is wrong. And that's called dogmatism. The truth is that Christians disagree about a lot of things, don't they? Um, Christians agree about doctrine. Christians agree about theological issues. Christians disagree about things as important as baptism, like when you should be baptized. Christians disagree certainly about politics. Christians disagree about lots of complex ethical issues. The truth is that there are many what historically in the church has been called secondary issues. This is distinct from what we would call primary issues. I have a little graph. It's a very complicated graph. I made this for you here. So primary issues are the things around which Christians who are equally committed to scripture agree. What are primary issues? The Trinity, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the dual nature of Christ, the birth of new life through the spirit. I mean, these things that we confess in the creed, right? Secondary issues are all those other things in which Christians who are equally committed to Jesus end up disagreeing about, right? Now, the problem is, is that sometimes, especially in these polarized times, people will take secondary issues and raise them to the same level. They will draw, pull them into the center. They will raise them to the same level as primary issues like the Trinity. And whenever you take a secondary issue, like how you think Christians should engage in politics, and you make it into a primary issue such that it causes you to separate from a fellow Christian, then you are engaging in idolatry because you are saying something other than Jesus Christ is at the center of your faith. So this really helps us, right? 
When Christians take a primary thing like the Trinity and push it out to a secondary issue, that's called heresy. (laughs) When, When Christians take a secondary thing like politics or baptism and pull it into the center, that's called idolatry. Right? And, and what, we, what Christian unity means is that we are unified in the essentials, the primary truths of the faith, and we give freedom to one another in the secondary things. As Augustine wrote, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. And Third Church is deeply committed to keeping the first things first and the secondary things second for the sake of unity in the gospel. And this is wonderful because it means that we can have a church where people disagree about stuff. And I know we do, right? And yet we can say, I disagree with you about this or that. And yet I agree with you about what is truly important. You are my brother and sister, and therefore we will serve and worship together. And I will tell you, friends, if we can do that in a world like ours, we will model a different kind of love, a different kind of unity in a world that is falling apart. Okay? Are y'all with me on that? Third church family. Okay. So that's the nature of Christian unity. It's unity in the essentials of the faith. Second, though, what's the purpose of Christian unity? Well, Jesus says it um, so clearly. He says it in verse 21, um, may they be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And he says in verse 23, that the world may know that you have sent me. So Jesus prays that his followers that would come and that would believe in him would be unified so that by seeing and encountering the unity of the church, people would believe that Jesus is the sent one that he is the savior and the son of God. What this means, y'all, is that even more than preaching, even more than apologetics, even more than evangelism, even more than techniques that we learn, that the primary way that the people of God are called to share the good news about Jesus to the world is through our love for one another, our unity. That's remarkable. John um, often riffs on this theme of how the invisible God is made known. God has a problem, you know, he's invisible. Well, it's not a problem for God, it's a problem for us, right? And so John loves to reflect on how does the invisible God that we can't see make himself known? And so in John 1, very famously, John says this, um, no one has ever seen God, but that's the problem, right? So how does God solve his problem? God, the one and only, who's that? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So Jesus solves the problem of God and God's invisibility by making God known. Now, it's great for the people that got to meet Jesus, but what about us? Jesus has ascended. Well, this is what John says in his first letter, which is truly amazing. He uses the same language. He says, no one has ever seen God. That's the problem. So how will an invisible God be made known? But if we love one another... God lives in us and his truth and his love is made known through us. So John says that just as the incarnate Jesus made the invisible God known, so now the people of Jesus make that same invisible God known through the way we love one another. Isn't that amazing? That we have the same purpose of revealing God as Jesus did himself when he walked on the earth. How could we do that? How might our unity reflect the power of Jesus in the world. Well, here's just a few thoughts on that. How how our unity could purposefully point to the gospel. For it to do that, first of all, unity has to be relational and not just organizational. Jesus says, verse 21, may they be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. 
Jesus holds up the Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Spirit are interconnected in a community of love, in deep relationship with each other. And Jesus says, your unity, dear church, should reflect the same unity that Father, Son, and Spirit experience. So what that means is that our unity can never just simply be organizational. We are very well organized. We all showed up at this place at 11 o'clock. Most of you did. Many of you showed up at 11.08 or whatever. But most of us, you know, we, we are well organized. But, but our unity, Jesus says, is not meant to just be organization. It's easy to be organizationally unified, but it's something else very different to be relationally unified that reflects the same interconnectedness of the Trinity. What that means is, look around the room. Does anyone here, do you know anyone here has more than just an acquaintance? Are you known by anyone here? Do you know anyone here on a deep soul level? Does someone in here know your sin, know your struggles, know the problems you're having in your marriage? Does anyone in here know the struggles you're having with your kids right now, know the mental health struggles you're going through? Are you known? Have you taken the risk to go deep into interconnected relationship? The church is not an event, y'all. It's an interconnected community of love and it takes a risk to go there. And if you're not experiencing that at third, I would challenge you to take a risk. Join a parish group. Invite somebody out to coffee. Take a risk to share your burdens. Figure out who the people at third are that live in your parish and stop by their house uninvited <laughs> and, tell them, and tell them that your pastor told you to do it. Just see what happens, right? So, so if, if we're gonna demonstrate this, if, if our unity is gonna purposely bear witness to Jesus in the world, it can't just be an organizational, it has to be deeply relational, right? Another thing that our unity needs to be is, is impartial. Most unity in the world is partial. What I mean by that is it's, it's formed by, by, by um, segments and biases. So you say, oh, you like pickleball? I love pickleball. Let's be together, right? Most unity in the world is formed by common interests, common backgrounds, common socioeconomic status, common income, common education levels. That's the way that most worldly unity is formed. But in the community of Jesus, the unity is meant to be impartial, in which barriers that divide human community are torn down. Because as Jesus said in verse 20, he's praying for all those who will believe in me. He's envisioning a community of people who have nothing in common other than the fact that what? They believe in Jesus. I mean, just think about Jesus's disciples. Um, among them, among the 12, were Simon the Zealot. In other words, he was a radical conservative looking to overthrow the Roman state. And also in his crew, was Matthew, the tax collector, who was working for the Roman state. So essentially, in his 12 disciples, he had a libertarian conservative and a big government liberal. One's watching CNN, one's watching Fox News, right? Both in his community. How is this happening? Because their deepest loyalty was to Jesus. Their life in Christ was a deeper foundation of their identity more than anything else. And this is one of the, one of the key ways that we can demonstrate true unity of the world, that we're able to hold together people who might not otherwise ever choose to be together were it not for Jesus. And again, I wanna challenge you. Think about your friendships. Are you, are you friends with anyone that you would never have chosen to be friends with were it not for Jesus? Are you friends with anyone? Maybe look through your phone, look at your last 10 people that you texted or called, right? Are you friends with anyone 
that you would never have been friends with were it not for Jesus? And if you can't answer that question in the affirmative, I, got, I wanna challenge you, take a risk. If you're afraid of boomers, there's a lot of them here. You know, you can reach across a generational boundary, right? <laughs> or the other way around, y'all. You think all millennials are lazy? They're not, they're awesome, actually. So reach across a boundary, but there's, there's barriers that exist out there that we have in here. Take a risk, get to know someone. Get to know someone of a different background, a different political persuasion than you. Get to, we have partnership with the Christian Arabic church, immigrants and refugees from other parts of the world. We have a relationship with, the, with um, Eastern Fellowship. Get to know people from, who live in a different part of the city or from a different racial or cultural background. We're called to stretch ourselves because the deeper our identity goes in Christ, the wider we can go to cross boundaries that Jesus wants to cross, right? So unity is impartial. And then finally, unity is, is a reconciling. Being united does not mean that there won't be conflict or disagreements. There are. Jesus hints at this when he says, may they become one. He acknowledges that oneness is not just a static thing. You have to work at it. You have to become it. You have to move towards it, right? Community who in here knows that community is hard? <laughs> that relationships are difficult, right? That um, unity is often ruptured, but when that happens, being committed to unity means there is a commitment to the process of reconciliation and repair and forgiveness. This is, there's a reason why Paul says in Ephesians 4, bear with one another in love and be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He says, you gotta maintain the unity of the spirit. What happens when you don't maintain your car? You know, it dies. What happens if you don't maintain your garden? Do y'all know gardening? What happens? <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you. You're just shy. Um, yeah, the weeds overtake. You know, and so Paul says, if you don't, Christian people, if you don't maintain the unity, if you don't work hard at it, if you don't take responsibility for the ways that you've harmed each other, if you don't work hard for reconciliation and repair, then then the, the, the unity that Jesus prayed for is gonna fall apart. I'm so, you know, y'all, um, we will hurt each other. People in this room have hurt each other. I have hurt people in this room. People in this room have hurt me. We just had a whole big batch of people join the church. And I love it when people join the church and they always say in their testimony, this is the most amazing church. I, you know, it's so incredible. And I just am thinking to myself, just give it time, my friend. <laughs> give it time. <laughs> because that's just the way, it, that's the way it is. That's what it's like to be in the church, right? And to be in the church means you will, have a, you will have a hundred reasons to throw in the towel and walk away. And to be in the church means that you are a person that is committed to the powerful work of forgiveness, repair, and reconciliation. Just last week, someone, one of you came to me and told me that I had really hurt him. I didn't do it on purpose. I unintentionally did it. But I'm so grateful that he did that. And, I'm, and I told him, I was, it was really hard. It was really hard to hear. And I had to battle against my own shame. But I was so grateful because it, instead of nursing a grudge, instead of making assumptions, instead of walking away, he came to me and he shared it with me and he, and he, and he gave me a chance to repent and to ask for forgiveness and to be reconciled. When the world sees group of people doing that work is something that is supernatural that we could never do in our own sin. And not only do we need to do that work of reconciliation in our own congregation, 
We need to do it with the Church of Richmond. You know, the church, the church of Richmond continues to be a highly disunited community, right? We are, we are divided. We're divided theologically, denominationally, jurisdictionally, certainly racially, right? Sunday morning, even, we remain just as racially segregated as in 1960 when Dr. King noted the Sunday morning is the most segregated time of the week in America. This fact should grieve the heart of every Christian who loves and knows Jesus and who wants to see his prayer fulfilled. And so we do our, we, we give our greatest effort to understanding what divides us, to understand what has historically divided the church. We take responsibility for ways that we may have participated in the division and the oppression within the Christian community. And we work for forgiveness and repair, listening to other, learning from each other, working for greater and greater unity. No one church will ever bring shalom to Richmond. It is through the united people of God as we work together, building greater unity across the body of Christ. This is what Jesus prayed for. And so you see the purpose of unity. What is it? It is to show the world the gospel. There is something that happens. People need to know the love of God, y'all. There's so many reasons to disbelieve in the love of God. Did you know that? There's so many reasons to doubt that there is a God of love. And yet when the people in the world see in the church, people loving each other who never should love each other, when they see conflict being handled in beautiful reconciling ways that model forgiveness and peace, when they see people sharing resources and wealth and possessions, when they see people who are very different from one another, learning to love one another, then the world will stop and sit up and notice. The greatest way that we can make the gospel plausible out there is if we live the gospel out in here through beautiful, unified community. That's the purpose of it. How do we get the power to do this? Where do we find the source to live this out? Well, look what Jesus says. He says, verse 21, may they be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, you have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus is, I mean, this is astonishing. He's saying that the only way that we can be horizontally united with each other is if we are vertically united with the triune God. And this is what Jesus is giving to us as a gift. The problem with Lionel Richie's song, <laughs> We Are the World, is that ultimately it was a human, it was a human endeavor. There's so many efforts in the world to try to unify, to bring peace, to increase greater tolerance and inclusivity. And there's many good efforts out there. I'm not knocking them. You know, I just think that many of them are naive because they do not take seriously the seriousness of sin, that we are deeply selfish, deeply prideful, deeply turned in upon ourselves people, and that racism and greed and self-preservation and hatred and murder and war are baked into us, produced out of the fall. And we can work all we want on unity, but if the heart is not healed, if we remain stuck in our sin, stuck in our self-centeredness, cut off from God, cut off from each other, then no amount of work on unity is ever going to bring the healing that the world sings for. So this is what Jesus is offering us at the table. He's offering us. He says, he says before unity is something that you accomplish, it's something that God accomplishes. Before unity is something you achieve, it's something you receive. It was accomplished for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. Y'all, he finished this prayer. He said, amen. He went out and he was crucified. 
And he was killed for the sins and the conflict and the plagues and the wars and the divisions of all humanity. And he was ripped apart that all humanity might be brought back to God. And he says, now through me, through my grace, you can be reconciled to God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit so that now like a vine attached to a branch, my love can be flowing in you at all times and all places so that you might be a person who is an agent of unity and reconciliation in the world. That's what we're being offered here at this table. We come as people who are broken and divided, who have sinful, self-centered hearts, who've hurt others and have been hurt by others. But we come to this table with Jesus freely inviting us in to receive, to receive his mercy, to receive his forgiveness, to receive reconciliation with God. And then as you come forward, y'all, you're gonna look around and you're gonna see all these other people coming too. And you might even see someone over there that you don't like. And you might see, oh, Jesus is receiving them. I guess I better receive them too. <laughs> because this is how it works. By being united to God through Christ, we are then secondarily united to one another by his grace. We're given all the power that we need through his grace to be agents of his reconciliation in the world. So may that be so, third friends. May that be so for us. May that be so for the Church of Richmond so that Jesus would be brought glory. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. In our prayer, we're actually going to pray a prayer of confession as we approach the table. I'll draw your attention to the prayer and your bulletin or on the screen. This is actually borrowed from the Church of Nigeria. It's a prayer of confession, confessing the ways that we have not fulfilled the prayer of Jesus. I'll lead us and you respond. Father, who formed the human family to live in harmony and peace, we acknowledge before you our divisions, quarrels, hatreds, injustices, and greed. May your church demonstrate before the world the power of the gospel to destroy division, so that in Christ Jesus there may be no barriers of wealth or class, age or intellect, race or color, but all may be equally your children, members one of another, and heirs together of your everlasting kingdom. And we say together, Lord, hear. Just take a moment to confess your sin. Perhaps focusing on this theme, what are ways that you may have um, pulled back from another fellow Christian because they think differently about, than you about something, where you have found yourself intentionally segregating or dividing yourself from another, maybe where Someone has caused you harm, and instead of going to them and forgiving them, you have nursed a grudge and pulled away. Maybe someone has come to you and you've refused to forgive. What is it that God is putting in your heart right now in which you have contributed to the disunity of the body of Christ rather than its unity? Would you confess that now?